Hey, I'm Natasha Crane. And I'm Elisa Childers. Welcome to Unshaken Faith, where we equip you to live your Christian faith boldly in a chaotic culture. Recently, a woman commented on social media about the views of the youth pastor of her church. She quoted him as saying, In my opinion, red letters, Jesus' words, are the most important in all the Bible. The woman rightly pointed out that this reflects an incomplete view of Scripture, referencing Hebrews 4.12, which states, quote, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Some progressive Christians will say that the Word of God is Jesus himself, not the Bible. For Christians who are trying to live their lives according to God's Word, this can be incredibly confusing, since it can seem like Christians disagree on who or what the Word of God even is. We'll unpack these ideas in today's podcast, but first, here's an Unshaken Conference update, plus our tips of the week. Well, we're getting closer to coming to Calvary Chapel, Chino Hills. We're very excited to be joined by our friend Frank Turek to come to the Southern California area and help equip you to live out your Christian faith in this increasingly chaotic culture. So if you're anywhere in the Southern California area, we'd love to see you come out. Go to unshakenconference.com to register for that. And this might be a really good week if you're in the Southern California area, if you're thinking about coming, to maybe mention it to your pastor, maybe mention it to some people at your church to see if they might be interested in joining you for the Unshaken Conference. This is going to be such a great time of equipping. So this is the week to bring it to the attention of your pastor and the people in your church. Maybe share something on social media. That would help us so much to get the word out that we're going to be coming to your area, and we are so excited about that. Tucson and Nashville tickets will be available soon, so be looking out for that at unshakenconference.com. So my tip of the week, I was thinking what I might do every now and then, is just talk about a logical fallacy. Because so often, what we encounter in culture, yes, it's unbiblical. Yes, it goes against God's nature and character, but it's also highly illogical. And God is not a God who is logically fallacious. In other words, he's he's logical, right? It's going to line up with truth, what he has to say. And so the logical fallacy I wanted to introduce you to is kind of a more obscure one, but it's used a lot, but it's not recognized a lot. And it's called the gish gallop. Natasha, have you heard of the gish gallop? (laughs) You know, now that you say that, I've heard the word, but I couldn't define it. I don't know what it is. Tell us. Well, it's basically when somebody brings a lot of different claims all together and they spout them off in a row to where there's no way that you could possibly answer every single different claim. So for example, somebody might say, well, I don't believe in a God who could allow people to go to hell because God is supposed to be good. And besides, Christians are evil anyway, and the resurrection didn't even really happen. And if you look at all the wars throughout history, a lot of that was done by Christians. And a lot of people have abused the Bible and there have been, so you see how there's like seven or eight different claims that I just said, all the way from the reliability of the resurrection to the Bible, to the bad behavior of Christians. How on earth can we possibly interact with a gish gallop? Well, here's the best way to go about it. If somebody does does something like that. 
just calm yourself down and maybe say something like, wow, you've brought up a lot of different things in that, you know, the statement that you just made. Is there one particular one that you'd like to talk about first? I noticed you mentioned the resurrection of Jesus. You also mentioned some things that Christians have done in history. Is there one of those that is maybe like the most important that you'd like to talk about? And then try to keep the person on topic of that one thing. And the temptation as Christians is to try to cover it all and try to answer it all. But you're not going to be able to do that if somebody is doing a gish gallop. So just pick one thing, calmly ask them, you know, what's the most important thing and then start there. I love that word, the gish gallop. That makes me think, I think, doesn't Greg Coco call it the steamroller? Isn't that kind of like a steamroller where somebody just kind of rolls over you with all these different objections? And this is very common. I see this all the time, especially on social media. It's almost like some people copy and paste these long things that they just want to reply in all kinds of different places. So I I love that. Well, my tip of the week is, especially for those who may struggle with doubts, but it's really important for all Christians to know. One of the most important verses that you can remember is 1 Corinthians 15, 14, which says, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. That means the resurrection is literally the historical event on which the entire truth of Christianity hinges. But people walk away from Christianity for all kinds of other reasons, like the church hurt them, another Christian hurt them, they don't like what the Bible says, they think Christianity is anti-science, and many other reasons. But it's critical to recognize that none of these reasons are valid reasons to not put your trust in Jesus. It's only the resurrection that matters for determining if Christianity is true. If Jesus was raised from the dead, he is who he claimed to be, God himself, and Christianity is true. And if he wasn't raised from the dead, he was just another false prophet. So as you process your doubts, make sure you start with an investigation of the historical evidence for the resurrection. That is the truth test for Christianity. And a classic book that I would point you to on that is The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus by Gary Habermas and Michael Lycona. That's a great book. I've read that as well. And it's such an important point because as we sort of touched on last week, a lot of different religions will offer you ways to live, rituals to follow, things to do, studies to participate in, all that stuff. But Christianity actually demands allegiance but it's only does that if it's true, right? So it has to be true in reality, but then it requires something of us. So that's a great tip there, Natasha. Well, as Natasha explained in the intro, there's a lot of confusion over what the Word of God is and how much of it is authoritative for our lives. And so the social media comment regarding the red letters of Jesus being more important than the other words in Scripture reflects fairly common outlook, especially in progressive Christianity. And there's even an organization called Red Letter Christians, which on their website, it says, quote, taking the words of Jesus seriously, end quote. Well, if you peruse the website, you'll find a lot of progressive ideas. And often when the term red letters are placed above the rest of the Bible, you'll find Jesus pitted against Paul with many progressive Christians disagreeing with Paul. Maybe you've heard something like that. Maybe some of your progressive friends have said, well, I really like Jesus. I don't really like Paul, or I disagree with Paul on some things, so I'm going to just stick with Jesus. Well, on the Red Letter Christian website, for example, there's an article advising progressive Christians on what to make of the Apostle Paul. This is, again, the classic Paul versus Jesus sort of um, false dilemma. So they write, quote, while Paul falls short of our current progressive demands, he was a trailblazer for his time. Most people who lived 2,000 years ago 
including Jesus, would fail to live up to our current understanding of equality, end quote. I just found that statement so stunning because it's basically saying we have these demands, these moral uh, enlightenments that we've come to today that even Jesus himself wouldn't live up to. So in other words, the Bible needs to line up with our moral demands and not the other way around. Well, there's so much to unpack here, but I think it might be good to start with what we mean when we say word of God. I remember back years and years ago when I was in a progressive church and that was being discussed. What is the word of God? Well, is it the Bible or is it Jesus or is it an inspirational saying that God might use to help you grow? Is it something you find in the works of Tozer and C.S. Lewis or something that you might find in the Bible? What is word of God? Well, of course, we know that Jesus is the word. John 1, 1 through 2 says that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So Jesus is the word of God. We certainly would agree with anyone who says that. And the words in the Bible that were highlighted in red are the words that Jesus spoke as God incarnate when he walked the earth. But Jesus is also God. So think about this. If Jesus is God and the Bible is God's word, then every word of the Bible is also the words of Jesus. So in other words, think about this. The entire Bible is red letters, technically speaking. So first, let's talk about that first claim I made there about Jesus being God, because this argument kind of only stands if he really is God. Yeah, and this is a huge subject. So before I even skim the surface of it, I want to just recommend my favorite book on this. It's called Putting Jesus in His Place, The Case for the Deity of Christ by Robert Bowman and Ed Komachewski. That book has been one of the most formative books for me in my years of studying apologetics. I've never read the Bible the same way since. They're actually in the process of updating it, uh, but I would highly recommend that to you. And what they do is they basically show how Jesus claimed to be God in all kinds of ways that aren't necessarily obvious to a casual reader. Once you read the book, they will become obvious, but you don't necessarily see it. So it's fascinating. But for our purposes today, I want to highlight just three times that Jesus claimed to be God in some pretty direct ways. First, in Mark 14, 61 through 65, after Jesus' Jesus's arrest, he was brought before the Sanhedrin and the high priest asked him point blank, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? And Jesus replied, I am. And all of you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. So Jesus was making a reference here to a prophecy in the book of Daniel in chapter 7. This not only identified him as the Son of Man predicted in that chapter, but the eternal sovereign Lord of all who will return to judge the very court in which he now stood trial. When seen in the light of Psalm 110, Jesus was claiming to sit on the very throne of Israel's God. That's a clear claim to deity. And the biblically literate Jews who heard him make these claims considered that blasphemy. They got it. They knew what he was saying. According to Leviticus 24, 16, blasphemy was punishable by death. So the high priest tore his robes and called for Jesus's execution. As a second and much briefer example, Jesus says in John 10, 30, I and the father are one. That's pretty direct. Again, the Jews recognized that this was a claim to deity, and they picked up stones to kill him. Finally, in John 8, 58, Jesus had a heated argument with some Judeans about their relationship to Abraham. They asked Jesus in verse 53, who do you think you are? And to this, Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. 
I am. This is Jesus's most explicit claim to deity. When Jesus identified himself as I am, he was not only claiming to be God, but the very God of the Old Testament. Because this was how God named himself to Moses in Exodus 3.14. Of course, the Jews understood exactly what he was claiming, even if a lot of times today people don't understand that per se. And once again, they picked up stones to execute him for blasphemy. So here's the bottom line. If If Jesus truly is the God of the Old and New Testaments, then it wouldn't make any sense to rank the so-called red letters and the black letters as differing in importance. They're equally important because they're coming from the same authoritative source. So Jesus is the word made flesh, but the scripture is the written word. Right. And I don't know if people have heard this claim. I see this on social media all all the time. That's such a good answer, Natasha, because it answers the claim when people say, hey, did you know that Jesus never claimed to be God? And it's like, yeah, well, he didn't get up on a mountain and proclaim in English, I am God. But he, the, the, he did it in ways that the people around him understood what he was saying. And this is exactly why uh, the, the scribes and the Pharisees wanted to stone him because he was claiming to be equal with Yahweh. So, you know, the written word and the word uh, made flesh, right? This is sort of what people pit against each other. We've talked about this on the podcast before. It's a common error in progressive Christianity. Nadia Boltzweber, who's a progressive Lutheran minister, and actually she's a contributing writer on Red Letter Christians. I just saw one of her articles up there. She wrote a book a few years ago about sexuality, and she defined God's holiness as the union we experience with one another and with God. Uh, This is a quote from her book. She said, holiness is when more than one become one and what is fractured is made whole. And it's on this definition that she refers to really any type of sexual activity that you feel makes you whole, not just as something that's approved by God, but actually she calls it holy. So she describes the gospels as being more authoritative than the rest of scripture. And she tells a story in the book, and I wanted to bring this into the podcast today because it's so apt for what we're talking about. But she had a friend who they were on some kind of a retreat and there was a campfire And this is a lesbian woman who just really wanted to embrace uh, that as her identity. And so one by one, she started tearing out passages of scripture that condemned homosexuality, and she began throwing them in the fire. And then at the very end, she ripped out the four gospels, threw the rest of the Bible into the fire, and clutched the gospels to her heart. And basically, this was the point that Nadia Boltzweber was using to make to say, look, this is the canon within the canon. And she was unequivocal about it. Uh, According to Boltzweber, the gospels have a higher authority than the rest of scripture. But of course, when we assign varying levels of importance to the Bible, we're going to end up picking and choosing what, you know, quote unquote, resonates with us. Uh, But that can cause us to basically craft a Christianity in our own image. Yeah, that's a really good example of kind of the practical consequences of treating just the red letters as something different than the rest of the Bible. You will end up with a different version of what's true about reality because you're just looking at one portion of what God has said. And when you rip that out of the full context, of course, you're going to get to something different. So this is a really important subject for us to understand when we're holding the historic Christian faith. How do we know that the entirety of Scripture is the Word of God, not just these 
red letters. So I think another thing we need to remind ourselves of really is Jesus's own view of scripture. And this has kind of an ironic ending to it. So just follow with me here. He affirms scripture as the word of God over and over again. So for example, in Matthew 15, three, he chastised the religious leaders for breaking the commandment of God. He continued in verse four, God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. Well, in saying that, he was referring to commands from Exodus 20, 12, Exodus 21, 17, Leviticus 19, 3, and Deuteronomy 5, 16. So notice then that Jesus referred to three different Old Testament books and said, God commanded. It was God who commanded those things in the Old Testament. Then in Mark 7, 8 through 13, Jesus criticized the Pharisees for leaving, quote, the commandment of God and adding their own traditions to scripture. He told them that they void the word of God by their tradition. That's another reference to the Old Testament being the word of God. And one more example, just before quoting Exodus 3, 6 in Matthew 22, 31 to 32, he said, have you not read what God said to you? Jesus continually referred to the Old Testament scriptures as the word of God. So ironically, if we were to place the red letters as having a higher authority, it's actually the red letters themselves that tell us to view the black letters as the word of God. Yeah, I like to say the living word, the 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 word made flesh, felt that there was no contradiction with having the written word be God's revealed word. There was just no contradiction for him. So we should follow that example. And of course, we know from 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, it's the famous verse, all scripture, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So we would be wise to just follow the instructions of scripture and follow the example of Jesus and view all of the Bible, whether the letters are black or red as the revealed word of God. That's right. Well, thanks for listening today. Don't forget to subscribe to the Natasha Crane podcast and the Elisa Childers podcast for more long form episodes where we go deeper into topics like these. For now, let's remember that as Christians, we have a firm foundation to stand on that, as Psalm 62 puts it, is our rock in salvation, our fortress where we will never be shaken. (laughs) 